said before, we were going to try to keep it in front of you all year long. And, you know, we did that because we were trying to come up with a mnemonic. A mnemonic is some kind of gesture you make to keep things. So we only came up with two. It was either this or that. And we thought a display would be much better. And so we put that in back so that everybody kind of keeps it in front of their mind. That this is where we're at. How many people want to move faith forward this year? All right. And that's what it's all about. We need to be prompted. We need, the Bible says, to exhort one another, right, to do what? On to good works, right? And that's what it's really all about. So when we look at the passage today, it's a great passage. Uh, last week we talked about hindrances to our faith and, you know, God's purpose in those perceived hindrances to show us what our faith is, where it's at, and what it can be. And so today I want to go a little bit deeper to take us to see how we utilize it to really grow our faith. You know, problems can either drive you away from God or they can drive you closer to God. By God's grace, our problems can be the very things that we need to experience God's power and presence in our life. Amen? And I think sometimes we just don't realize the value of them. And sometimes when we face difficulties, our natural tendencies is to move away from God. Right, it's, to, it's sort of to abandon God and try to deal with things on our own. And in times of uncertainty, God wants us to focus on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, to grow us, to move faith forward. And let's be honest, this is a very practical uh, message today because, you know, when facing problems, the whole goal of God's interaction with mankind is to move faith forward. Ours and sometimes the faith of others who see us or learn about us in their lives, right? And let me start off by saying, as as practical as it is, is that, you know what, the first thing we learn from the passage is complaining never solves anything, does it? I mean, think about it. They are complaining, and does it solve the issue? And to me, what foolishness, because when you think about it, they're complaining about where they're at, and they forget that they were slaves not a few months ago in in Egypt, and they're complaining in the wilderness. I like what Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said, don't don't complain to anyone and tell them about your problems because 80% of the people don't care, and the other 20% think you deserve them, right? (laughs) I've also found in my years in ministry that people who complain about how the ball bounces are usually the ones that have dropped the ball. And I think sometimes we don't recognize that. And here's the thing that I think is most practical about the passage. And I love how Moses frames it. The people are complaining because they're, they're stuck in the desert, right? And they don't have anything to eat. And they're complaining to Moses and Aaron about Moses and Aaron. It's their fault. They're the leaders. They're the ones that are driving the caravan here. And they look at them and said, who are we? You're complaining against God. As a pastor, that's very comforting because I realize I'm a man that sometimes will make mistakes. But as I seek to follow God, as Jason seeks to follow God, John seeks to follow God, Clint seeks to follow God, we're doing what God, we believe God wants us to do. And so when you're complaining sometimes about us, the question is, is it really about us or are you really complaining about what God's doing? If God is control over the king's heart, it says, and the king's life, and can turn it any which way he wants. It's like a river, right? Isn't the same true with God's leaders? And shouldn't we trust God to deal with God's men? And so sometimes we don't realize, though, God will use men to bring a congregation to a place of testing itself. 
a taste where they've got to depend on God, a taste where they, a place where they feel God's presence in a way they didn't feel before. So it's not always the promised land. And we find here Moses has led them into a place where the people find themselves complaining. And I believe they're complaining for a couple reasons. One, it's forgetfulness. When you forget all the things God has done for you over the years, right? I guarantee you every time there's a problem in your life, you would just sit down and write out all the blessings and all the answered prayers in your life and just do that. It's a real practical thing to do is to have a journal where you just write that out, do it every once in a while. So when times come of difficulty, you can pick that up and say, look what God did. Look what answers he gave me. And just go through them all the time. And there's gonna, you say to yourself, there's no reason why it shouldn't be any different now, right? Because we forget what God has done for us. They were only two months gone from seeing the Red Sea parted, all those ten plagues in Egypt, seeing God destroy the whole Egyptian army. They just saw all that stuff. And two months later, they're complaining, and they forgot about how good God was and how much God cared for them. To me, it's impossible to forget all the good things that God does for us. And often, how, how quickly we do, isn't it? I also think it's caused by short-sightedness. Israel was looking for life on the horizontal instead of the vertical. And if they would just have looked to see the presence of God in the midst of the camp, in the midst of their despair, but they were impatient for a solution. And when you're impatient for a solution, it causes us to focus on the problem versus the process of what God's taken us through. Sometimes we don't think about that, you know, It's not why I'm here. It's what do you want me to do while I'm here? Short-sightedness will cause us to look at the circumstances, problems, rather than see the cloud of God's glory, which is his presence, right? The desire for the temporary and immediate comfort will choke out faith. As hard as it may seem, God will give us grace that perseverance will drive our faith forward. To me, the best example of that is not realizing that God is present in the midst of all our problems. It's not, how, did I get, how do I get out of this? It's really, but what can I learn from this is really the question and the pondering of the heart. To me, I think that sometimes people tend to run to people. I always say misery loves company, and it's so true. People that are frustrated find other people that are frustrated. And what's the outpouring of frustrated people? Complaining. Complaining. If you're somebody who complains, you don't have a lot of friends unless they're friends that complain too. I think it's so important for us to understand that you cannot expect your faith to move forward when people all around you are pulling you in a different direction than God wants to take you. It seemed like the whole camp was against Moses and Aaron, which is against God. What I marvel at is God's patience with them. The children of Israel needed to learn, as much like we do, that our faith isn't developed because of one event or something God did in the past. Our faith is strengthened every time we choose to trust God over the situation, the circumstance, or the people in our lives. See, he said he was going to test them. The word means prove, right? It really means to to learn the true nature of something. And isn't that what God's about? He knows it. It's like when you take a test. A teacher usually knows whether you know the material or not. They give you the test to make sure you realize you know the material. Same thing here. God's testing them to show them exactly where their faith is at. 1 Peter says this, 1-7, so that that the tested 
genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? God sometimes puts us in some incredible situations so that the world could see our faith, that we can understand our faith. I think of some of the great heroes of faith. I was just reading about Diedrich Bonhoeffer, how his name and his faith is what we think about when we think about Germany and the Christian movement there, right, during World War II. He gave his life for standing for what was true. I think of the fact that, you know what, if you believe that God is working your life and is testing you and putting you in situations to make you purer and stronger and more valuable so that he strengthens your face for the good of yourself and all those around you. If you believe that God is here to make you happy, you will live a life of frustration, bitter disillusionment. God's not here to make you happy. God gives you so much more than that. He gives you things like joy and contentment that aren't restricted to your circumstances or your situation. He's here to drive you to the place where your faith shines forth and people praise his name on account of you. See, every place has a purpose. Every place that God brings you has a purpose. First, I think in this case, it was to know the provision of God once again. Obviously, a lesson that they didn't learn really well. Every place he leads is for a purpose. Don't moan about where God has taken you. See how you can use it for his glory because it will always be for your good. So if God's taken you, I, I look at what happened when we merged together. There were some people that really weren't in the merge. And I get it. But, you know, we all felt so strongly that God was moving this way. And I got to tell you, today as we were singing, and I was looking up here and listening to the worship team that does an awesome job, I was just praising God that he did what he did. And that we can look back out there and we have a full children's department. It's, you know, really awesome for the kids. We have a youth group and we have a bunch of kids in it. And we have a congregation where it's full of people. I'm thinking, look at what God has done. And I think sometimes we've got to recognize that we've got to use everything for his glory. Every problem has potential too. Problems are the instrument that God uses to test and prove and develop our walk and strengthen us. They're a refining tool of our hearts. It's to strengthen our faith to make us stronger with more resolve. God is using whatever you consider a hindrance to prune your life and increase your faith in him. And I think when we focus on God, we'll deepen our faith. And our tendencies is to think about a solution all the time. And, and I think we need to get <clears throat> out of a situation. We're always focused on that versus how do I look to God in this situation to bring him glory with how I act, what I say, and what I think, right? Because how a man think as he is. And so we always want to ask ourselves when we're in different situations, God, how do you want me to think? Because I know it's going to affect what I do, and I know it's going to affect what I say, and I want to bring you glory in all of that. I think sometimes in the midst of difficulties, we got to stop and practice the presence of God in our lives to ask God, how do you want us to think? 
When's the last time you really prayed that prayer? Lord, how do you want me to think? Because it's easy for me to think like Mike Shepard wants to think. It's a lot harder for me to think like God wants Mike Shepard to think. They're two different things. And I've realized over the years that resources are not my problem. Obedience is. Obedience is a demonstration of my trust in God. Here's the thing. So often we'll go through life and we don't really realize that God is here. I love the story of the 12 disciples. They're on the Sea of Galilee. Remember, most of these were seasoned fishermen. And they're in the midst of a violent storm. And during this violent storm, they're afraid for their lives. So you know it had to be a really bad storm. And they're like freaking out. And there's Jesus sleeping in the boat. I mean, think about that. He's sleeping in the boat. And then they wake him up. And they say, don't you care? We're about to perish. And his response is he simply gives up and he calms the waves. He calms the storm. And when I read that story this week in my devotionals, I started thinking, you know what? At every facet and every time and every place God brings me, he's there. And the best definition of hope that I've read is that hope is the virtue, knowing no matter what's going on in our life, Jesus is present even if he's sleeping in your boat. And isn't that true? I mean, I don't care what you're going through. I don't care where you're at today. God is present in your life. He is here. He said, I'll never leave you and forsake you. In fact, he said, I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to send you a comforter. Someone is going to walk alongside you. He's called the Holy Spirit to guide and lead you in life. You're never alone. You're never outside the presence of God. So no matter where you're at in your life and what's going on in your life and how difficult it may seem, you can just stop and say, you know what, Lord, I know you're here with me. Help me to stop complaining. Help me to stop focusing on the negative. Help me to start focusing on what you would have for me in this situation and how I can bring you glory in my life. The more we walk with God, the more we'll trust him. Yes, Sometimes we need to wake them up. Sometimes we need to say, Lord, you're not, are you, you, here, you see me here? Can you help me here? You can do that in many ways. Prayer is a great one. Walking in obedience is a better one. A lot of times God knows we know what's right to do. And I would say, I would challenge everybody to say that you probably know more scripture than you're actually obeying. God tested the people in Israel to see if they would obey. And guess what they didn't? He said, only take enough for the one day. Like, took some to keep it the next day, and it rotted, and there were worms. You know, and he said, don't do stuff on the Sabbath day. And they got up, and they made Moses and Aaron mad because the people weren't obeying God. It's frustrating sometimes. As parents, you know this, when your kids don't listen to you. Because you know you're trying to tell them what's best for them, and they just don't want to hear it. And the same thing's true with Scripture. God tells us a whole lot of stuff that he wants us to hear, and it's amazing how many of God's people just do not obey because they don't trust God's got a better way for their life. See, the Israelites didn't have a resource problem either. They had a faith problem. The children of Israel would never have victorious if they weren't going to have until they had faith in God in the daily little things. God will take what little faith we have and meet us where we're at and elevate that faith because God desires that his people, his children, move forward in faith. 
Isn't that awesome? He wants us all to move forward in faith. I love this quote. While we wait for God to work, he's making us spiritually fit to receive what he's already promised us to do. It reminds me of Ephesians that said, hey, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Guess what? Which he prepared in advance for us to do. God's always working for his glory and our good. We just got to trust him, even if it seems bad. Not all things are good. Like Romans 8 said, all God works together for the good of those who love him. We're called according to his purposes. Guess what? Not all things are good, but they all work for good. It's hard to imagine sometimes and hard to really think through. To me, it's a beautiful symbol of Jesus coming down when we look at this bread. When we look at this issue with the Israelites, sometimes the lesson and the proving and the testing of your faith, and I want you to hear this, it's always for you, but sometimes it's always for others around you and for others to come. Moses didn't write this to impact the people of the day that had this issue. He wrote it for the benefit of generations to come. In fact, he said in the passage, hey, grab some of it and put it in a container to save it for generations to come so they can see what God did. Sometimes God wants to do work in your life for others to see it, you to grow from it, but others to see it as well. Who's the best person to talk to if you lost a child? When we lost our child, when he was born and lived a, a day and you know, died because he had hypoplastic lungs, who were the best people to minister to us? Other people who lost a child. We go through things with Brooke and all the things that she goes, who's the best people to minister to us? Other people who have people with acute conditions in their life. If you've been through a divorce, who's the best person to minister through a divorce? Somebody who's been through it, somebody who's already walked there. And sometimes God wants to do things in your life so that you are better equipped to help someone else with the same problem you just went through. But ultimately, when I look at this passage, to me, the thing that really comes out the strongest for me is what it says about who Jesus is. And I think God made this whole thing happen and write this whole thing to give us a great lesson about Jesus Christ. To me, when I look at it, it's a beautiful symbol of Jesus coming down from above, who is the bread of life, the Bible tells us. It's how we live. It's not manna. To me, it's man alive when you look at it in the passage. John chapter 3, verses 32 through 35 said, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Isn't that what the manna did to them? It gave them life. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. A little bit later in the chapter, in verse 48, it says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. See, God is always showing that when he guides, he's always going to provide he didn't bring them that far to starve in the desert. He had a plan for them. He was going to provide for their needs, just like he does for us when we follow. 
And whether the path leads over a mountain or a valley or through a sea or through a desert, guess what? He's present. And if he's guiding and he's leading, he's going to provide and sustain and strengthen you in the midst of all of it. Only if we trust and obey. Isn't that a great song we teach our kids? Trust and obey. There is no other way, right? It's so true. It's so simple, but yet so profound and powerful when it's lived out. People didn't believe it. They returned that are complaining. You know, it's funny because when you read in Numbers 10, uh, Numbers 11 too, they're, 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 they're talking about how they missed the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Sounds like they had a lot of bad breath. Maybe that's why Egypt kicked them out, right? But I'm thinking, they're thinking of all these things they missed. But the funny thing is, when they awoke in the morning, think about what that must have looked like. When they awoke in the morning, and it says it was like a fine frost. Have you ever driven in your car early in the morning, and you look out a farm field that hasn't been, and it's just got that frost on it, how beautiful it looks? Think about how that looked. Think about all the bread. They said the Israelites must have been in numbers around 2 million people speculate. And if it was 2 million people, he would have had to drop enough manna from heaven to fill like 240 train cars full of manna to feed all of them. Every day. Every day. To me, I think when you think about it, what is Psalm 78? David said, they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And he did, didn't he? Right in front of them. Right before their very eyes. To me, I think we ask God to provide, whether it's a car expense or a medical expense or a food expense. It really doesn't matter. Do we trust him to do exactly that? Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Now he's going to supply all our needs, not our greeds, the Bible said. I mean, think about it. Manna for all that time, did it get old? I'm sure it did. I love the description of verse 31, which is, it's like a wafer that tasted like honey. And when you read a lot of things in numbers, it shows how they boiled it, they baked it, they did all, I'm sure they got very creative. When I was in the Army, I used to go to the, the, the uh, cafeteria, and you'd walk in there, they were really good at trying to disguise ground beef, right? You had meatloaf one day, you had hamburgers one day, you had tacos one day. Then you had what they called mystery meat. Nobody knew what it was, right? They did a really good job of taking something that they were going to have a lot of and making it somewhat interesting. And I think this is what we look at. It. God gives us stuff, and we just got to realize that, you know what? Whether you baked it, fried it, boiled it, pickled it, to me it was manna, and it was from God, and it had to be good. Does anything get old that you get from God? I think sometimes I ask ourselves when you think about it, you know, what what do we look at and what do we think about, you know what? Oh, yeah, I don't want to read the word anymore. I've read that before. Does the word get old for you? You know, you can tell by your devotions. You can tell by how much time you spend with it. You may say in your mind, no, the word never gets old, but if you're not into it, and you're not looking at it, and you're not reading it, and you're not digesting it, guess what? You're telling God it's old. It's not important. It's not necessary. 
To me, the man illustrates three things. One, who Jesus is. It was small. To me, it speaks of his humility. He came as a small baby in a manger. What an act of humility. When he left heaven for us, he was small. He was God who became man. I mean, that's small. To me, his humility continued through his whole adult ministry, and he washed people's feet, and he, he consorted with people with diseases and the poor and the downtrodden of life, those on the fringe. It was also round, to me, which speaks of his deity. A complete circle. It had no beginning and an end. It was white. To me, it spoke to his purity and his sinlessness. And most importantly, it was sweet. Is there any name sweeter than that of Jesus? We sang about it. What a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. What a sweet name it is. To me, that represents a picture of what Christ was going to be the world. Then it speaks to how Jesus came. The bread wasn't brought from Egypt nor manufactured in the wilderness along the way. It came from heaven. Manna fell as a gift from heaven right where the people were. And if you want to come to Jesus today, you don't have to go anywhere but where you're at right now. Because Jesus always meets us where we are. Now, he's not going to leave us there. He's going to change us and he's going to move us. That's why Jesus says, come all you who are weary and heaven laden and I will give you rest. John 6, for I am the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There was this one grave I read about in West Texas. It's still there today. It's a, a, a grave that has a little window where you can see all the way down to the coffin so sun can fly through and so the sunlight makes it its way each day down there and it was the grave of a little 10 year old boy who on his deathbed said to his dad don't leave me in the dark promise me you will not leave me in the dark but to me I think for us the most important thing to recognize from that is that you know what if you die outside of Christ no window in your grave will help you get out of the darkness the Bible describes eternity without Christ as the darkest darkness there is, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a horrible evil, which is why we want to motivate people to go out and send, to go out and pray for people and encourage them to come to, to, to notice needs in their lives and to speak truth and love so that, you know what? They get out of the darkness and they come in the light of God's love. They stop feeding and feasting on what the world provides and they see what God wants to provide. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that awesome? While they were grumbling in the desert, complaining about him, he gave them food. Same thing is with us. How we go through life complaining about our lot in life, complaining about our marriage, our job, our relationships, our kids, whatever it may be, not recognizing that God is going to work through all those things. And he's going to bring glory to himself if we just obey him in all of them, in our finances, in our, our words, in what we watch on TV, and in what we do. God didn't send a Savior because we wanted one. God sent us a Savior because we needed one. So it was man that represents who he was and how he came, but most importantly, what we must do in response 
to Jesus coming. Eat is really what it is. Are we spiritually hungry? Are we really wanting to move our faith forward? Are we willing to dive in and feast on Jesus in 2020? Will we avail ourselves of the feast set before us? Like the prodigal son himself when his father thought to himself, hey, what am I eating the slop in this, in this barn? When I get at my father's house, there's plenty of food. Too often we feast at the trough of this world that leaves us empty and wanting instead of feasting on the bread of life, on the word of life, Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus can satisfy. Notice when they had to get the manna, it was on the ground, which means they had to stoop down to get it. It didn't fall onto a table, nor did it grow on trees for them to climb. And you know what? Many people won't get saved because they refuse to stoop down and accept Jesus Christ for who he is. That's below their intellect. It's below the world's thinking. Others miss salvation by believing it's something they have to climb up for, to attain. But each person had to take it for themselves. They couldn't be satisfied by watching another partake, and no one else could gather it for them. Each had to reach for their own. And so it is with us. We get out of Jesus what we're willing to partake of. And if you find yourself this morning weak spiritually or wanting spiritually or hungering spiritually, the only person to blame is yourself. Because Jesus is always new each and every day. And because he's present, he wants interaction. He wants relationship. He wants you to enjoy his presence. They had to receive it early. For when they came out, if they didn't do it, it melted. No one knows a day and hour. The Bible says tomorrow could be your day. That's why the manna comes each and every day. So that you can partake of Jesus. Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found. There's a coming day of judgment. And for a lot of people, it's coming soon, unfortunately. To me, it's a good example of why we need to feast on God's word, why we need to be obedient to call to go out and reach others who know not God. That's why we're pushing send. Man is a great example of God's word. How do Christians grow spiritually? It's simple, by reading, meditating, and studying the scriptures, and then obeying it, right, as they engage it. You can't hoard it all up and say, well, this year's my day. This year I'm going to read all the Bible I can, and next year I'm just going to live it out. It doesn't work that way. You can read the same passage every day, every day, every day for 30 days, and by the end of those 30 days, you're going to really know the passage, and more importantly, every day you're going to get something new from God because that's how good it is. If you can eat manna every day, you can eat the Word of God every day, and it's going to give you something different all the time. Too many Christians are still hungering for the cardinal diet of the world and not feasting on Jesus himself. I want to ask God today to make us hungry for that spiritual manna, his Word.
Not just to be spoon-fed by the pastor or the Sunday school teacher. A lot of people come, those, I've heard them say, hey, look, i got to fill up today because i got a tough week. You know, you got to gas me up with your message. And I'm thinking, you know, gas yourself up every day by reading the Word of God and seeing what He has for you. Because you know what? Today is just one day. Every day the children of Israel had two choices when they woke up. They can go out and gather manna and eat it. And if not, they could walk upon it or they had to walk around it. You get that picture? Every day they had to get up and either go and embrace it and grab it to feast on, to sustain their life, or they had to ignore it or walk around it. Think about Hebrews 10.29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Isn't that true? The question today is how do we treat, how do we value How do we feast on the word of God, the bread of life? For me, it came real, and I'm going to close with this. My son this week, um, my youngest son, you know, you always, as a parent, you're always praying and struggling with where your kid's at, wanting them to be further along than they are spiritually. And it's awesome when you see it start to come together. I try to be very transparent about my kids from the pulpit because, you know, they're kids, and they're all growing. And my youngest son... Uh, this week, he sends me a text, and he sends me, and had to come from uh, convocation there, and, and he says, right afterwards, he says, Dad, James 1, 2 through 3 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he went on to recount all the times he tested me. All the times he brought me to places where we had trials. And he says, Dad, the thing that I learned from all that was that, you know what? You were steadfast. And and it blessed me because you were patient and hoping that I would get it someday. He goes, I think I'm getting it. I think I'm getting it. Pray for me. And for me... It made it all come together. It was Thursday. As I'm preparing the message, it made it all come together because, man, when I was going through those times, I was complaining. Oh, my gosh, why can't he get this? Why doesn't he not understand this? Why does he keep doing this? I was a typical person. But you know what? I just kept trusting God. And my wife will tell you, I always say that, man, the Bible says train your child up in the way he should go. And when he get older... He won't depart from it because the Holy Spirit has something to latch on to. So if you're a parent, you're in a different situation with your kids, even if they're grown, trust me, if you taught them, you can trust God to work through it. Just keep obeying, keep being that example, and somewhere along the line, I believe God will use it to turn them. It's a practical lesson today. People complaining, complaining to God about the people who were leading them, about getting something they thought they needed. And God gave it to him. That's how good he is. So I want to encourage you today. Look, if you've got a complaint with where you're at in your life right now, I want you to say no more. I'm going to give it to you, Lord. Help me to learn what you want me to learn in this and help me to be an example to the world around me that if someone else ever goes through this, they know they can seek me out and I can tell them how good you were in the midst of it. Amen?